I'm going to begin with the, the memorization verse that we just did in Acts chapter 8, and we read together. It said, Who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost, for as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for what you've made clear in your word. Thank you, God, for what is not that clear in your word and for everything in between. And that uh, you get the last laugh when it comes to Bible interpretation because you wrote the whole thing. And thank you for that, God. So we just uh, give ourselves to you. As we consider these verses together, may it be for the uh, edification, the unification of the church, the glorification of Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, kind of interesting that um, a few weeks ago, uh, I acknowledged, uh, we were aware that we had uh, a brother come to uh, present. He, he ended up presenting some things and uh, inviting a response to some things in a way that we uh, hadn't been used to before. And uh, I, I acknowledged that from the pulpit. And what I didn't tell you, is uh, what I believe about all those things. Uh, I'm now going to get into some of it. I'm going to speak today on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And um, I, think, I think that you're going to enjoy this, okay? Um, I, I believe that uh, the, the Word of God should leave you like edified and encouraged and hopeful. And it uh, shouldn't leave you like confused, kind of wondering um, in doubt. Uh, I, I think there's something fishy when that's going on. So... Um, we're going to go ahead and look at some of these verses and um, just kind of figure out what, what, what it's saying, maybe what it's not saying, and um, kind of look at how the church has approached this, different, um, different sectors of the Church of Jesus Christ has approached this, and see if we can draw some, some um, balanced conclusions from that. So beginning with uh, the verse before us, here's some questions we need to be thinking about. And here's some, some things that uh, the church uh, as a whole has, has differed upon. <clears throat> the book of Acts, okay, is it descriptive or prescriptive? Does it, is it just telling you what happened to come to pass on a certain occasion? Or is it like a genesis of the church where it's giving a pattern or a template or a model by which, um, from which things should be based going forward? That's a pretty good question, isn't it? Um, in other words, some people would say that the book of Acts is um, foundational. Some people would say that the book of Acts is transitional, okay? It's um, a pretty good question. I believe that um, in some places the book of Acts may be transitional, may need to be understood in context. In some places, the book of Acts may be foundational. In some places, uh, I'm not sure what it is out of those two things. In some places, I am. But I do know that according to your faith, shall it be done unto you. Bless God. This text before us is uh, very suggestive regarding, to me, um, what is the key issue regarding... Um, the different views in the church over the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the issue is not actually 
Um, <laughs> what, what a lot of people have seen as, as the big issue is the question, um, what is the initial evidence, as it's been labeled, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And the issue of speaking in other languages of the Holy Spirit, known or unknown. Um, I don't think that that's actually the foundational division in this issue. Um, but what, what I'm going to highlight here, I would point to a major separating issue right here. Um, and that is the issue of what some people call subsequence. Is there another experience that people need to have in the Christian life subsequent to conversion? Um, or some people call it a second. Is there such a thing as a second work of grace? Or to rephrase the question, we could put it like this. Are we all automatically baptized in the Holy Spirit at conversion? Or do we need to specifically seek another experience? Okay, that is the question that um, different um, sectors of the church have approached differently. Um, by the way, I don't think that speaking in other languages is, um, is, is the huge issue in, that, in this overall debate, if you will. Uh, to me, that part is pretty obvious. Um, the Bible says, do all speak in tongues? The rhetorical and implied answer, of course, is no. Um, and uh, also, as I look through the book of Acts, um, not everybody uh, that was in, in the accounts of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, not everybody, um, can, it cannot be proven categorically that everybody spoke in tongues, even in the accounts in Acts. Actually, the account in Acts chapter 2, you cannot take that as a model for present day practice because that pertains specifically to um, speaking in known languages, other known human languages. Um, uh, the modern day phenomenon of speaking in tongues, that is the vast minority of all cases. Most people, although that, I believe that has been experienced, I believe people have spoken in other languages, not known they were speaking another known human language and other people could hear them perfectly in their language. I believe that's happened many times uh, mm -hmm. since uh, the book of Acts, but I do not believe that to be um, actually the normal thing that's going on today. Most people would claim not to be doing something like that, but to be speaking in uh, an unknown language that the Holy Spirit's given them. So you can't take Acts chapter 2 as a justification in that case. The other, the other times that it happened, um, which was here in Samaria, at Cornelius' house, and also in Ephesus, it said they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. They spoke in tongues and they magnified God. So what does the and mean? Does that mean that everybody did both or some people spoke in tongues and some people magnified God? I don't know. But you certainly can't prove it one way or another from the text alone, okay? So we've got to be very careful about forcing things on people or insisting upon certain things. And um, certainly uh, the issue of speaking in tongues, as far as I'm concerned, no, all people do not speak in tongues. So getting back to um, our memory verse, what... Um, what it happened to be in Acts chapter 8. Are we all automatically baptized in the Holy Spirit at conversion or do we need to specifically seek another experience? Well, looking at this text, the answer is pretty obvious, isn't it? <laughs> looking at this text alone, there is a strong implication um, in this text. If you look at the text in Acts chapter 8, it says very specifically there, 
that um, they had already received the word of God, um, that they'd already been baptized in water. Um, last time I checked, those were some pretty good indicators that you were already a saved person, right? right. And, uh, but at the same time, it says in Acts chapter 16, yet the Holy Spirit was not yet fallen upon them. Stay with me now. And let's, let's, just, let's just make a little kind of side point right now, okay? I don't know where you're at in this issue in the room. You may be visiting. You may have been here all your life. You may have come here in the last two years. I don't know where people are at in this issue. I'm going to take this issue from both angles, okay? Um, so if you think, oh, man, he's arguing this one way that I don't agree with. I'm shutting down now. I'm ignoring the rest of the sermon. Stay with me, okay? Hang with me. You're going to like this. Okay. Getting back to this particular verse. Yes, it's pretty obvious right here, isn't it? They were... Seems to be biblically saved, believed in God, received the word of God. They were baptized in water, but the Holy Spirit had not fallen upon them. Along came the apostles and laid hands upon them. And it says, at that time, they received the Holy Spirit. All right. Now that we've got our minds all figured out on that issue, let's turn to Romans 8 verse 9. As I go through this, you are going to see um, how different um, sectors of the historic church of Jesus Christ have approached this issue and why there's such a division over this issue. Romans uh, 8 verse 9. Somebody read that or is it up on the screen? Can someone read that for us? Romans 8 9. Apparently in this verse, if you're saved, you have the Spirit of Christ. Period. Um, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're just not saved. So that verse would seem to lean in another direction, no implication of any further something being needed. It's just a case of if you're saved or if you're not saved. Um, by the way, in the Acts accounts, in Cornelius' house, it's a very interesting case. I like that one. Um, they were saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit at the same time. They didn't even ask for any of it. Put that in your kind of soteriology, kind of sovereignty of God, kind of theological discussion. They didn't even, they were, Peter was just preaching. And they all got filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, they're like, well, I guess we better baptize them because, I mean, they've got to be saved. God wouldn't have given them the Holy Spirit if they weren't saved. So, um, I love these different illustrations and just kind of pondering it all. Um, so Romans 8, 9, and somebody actually brought this up with me after our experience a uh, week past Thursday um, as, as a kind of key defining verse. Um, this verse seems to opposite, argue in the opposite direction from our, this week's memory verse in Acts. And then somebody else would say, oh yeah, but Pastor Nicky, no, no, you're not saying this right. Because what it is, Pastor Nicky, you can have a deposit of the Holy Spirit 
or be indwelled by the Holy Spirit without being baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's what they'd say to me. Okay. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1 now. Just track with me, okay? You'll like this. Just follow with me. Are you following so far? Or is this about as clear as mud? Um, Ephesians 1. I mean, I, what I love about this is all the Word of God. I want to receive the Word of God. All of it. Amen. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. It says, in talking about Jesus Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Somebody would say, well, this, this sealing of the Holy Spirit, um, this, is, this is different from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, it says here you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Isn't that the same promise of the Father that Jesus promised? That he would send the Holy Spirit, that we would receive the Holy Spirit, that, we would be, that the Holy Spirit would live inside of us? And it says, uh, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession. Um, some might say, well, you got the Holy Spirit a little bit when you were saved, and then now that's just a little down payment because you're going to get more later. I don't know about that. This verse does uh, refer to a down payment, but is it referring to a down payment um, towards another work of grace later, or is it referring to a down payment against the final redemption uh, of our whole bodies to be a glorified body. I don't know. I wouldn't want to force it on anyone. Do you know what I'm saying? There's definitely something floating around in there. Are you confused yet? I'm a plain devil's advocate. Um, I tell you what, um, if you promote confusion, you're plain devil's advocate. Because the devil is the author of confusion. God is not the author of confusion. If I'm confused on an issue and it's dragging me down, I just resist that and I cast it out in the name of Jesus. And I just look to Jesus and I praise him. Um, when, there's, uh, when things are getting kind of hairy, there's got to be something fishy going on. Um, somebody said, in the life of trust, no questions are asked, but all questions are answered. Hallelujah. Okay, um, I'm going to switch back to being a Baptist now. Let's turn to, if you're not sure if I'm a Baptist or a Pentecostal, then good. I want to be a Biblicist. I want to walk with God. I want to receive the Word of God. I want to examine the Word of God like a Berean, and I want to be open to anything the Holy Spirit wants to do. But let's look now to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is a kind of foundational verse which kind of has, the interpretation of which has um, different sectors of the body of Christ again have differed in the interpretation of this verse, and I'll tell you why. So hopefully as I go through this as well, you will begin to get an appreciation of, uh, of the whole body of Christ. You don't need to look over here and say, well, those died in the world Baptists, they're just like the frozen chosen. And, uh, you know, we don't need to denigrate any, any sector of the body of Christ. And as much as um, brothers and sisters in the Lord genuinely seek to do his will and walk with him, bless God. Yeah. Hallelujah. Uh, we don't need to look over here at, um, at our Pentecostal brothers and sisters and they're just like, oh, they're just crazy holy rollers and I don't know where they're coming from with all this half this stuff. No, 
each side has genuine godly people who are very intelligent, very educated scholars who have researched this to the nth degree, know every single scripture concerning the issue, and yet in the final analysis, they don't quite agree with one another. Okay, I'll, I'll speak more about that later. But now look at 1 Corinthians 12, 13, another scripture that's about as clear as mud. The crazy thing is, people like build statements of faith on this. Have you ever read any of those statements of faith on, on churches' websites? And they make a statement and then they've got a list of like 10 verses. So you think, oh man, they've got a list of 10 verses. They've really got done their homework and they must really know what they're talking about. And then, you, and then you look up those 10 verses. Five of them don't seem to have anything to do with the thing they're talking about. And the other five, none of which are categorical or definitive. You're like, mm, okay, it could go either way with that. So why is the body of Christ, do we keep claiming that there's these definitive answers to definitive questions and I'm right and somebody else is wrong when I'm not sure if you go that far solely from the word of God. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Okay, this is in the context of 1 Corinthians 12 talking about the gifts of the spirit, the diversity of the gifts, the diversity of operations, the diversity of administrations. And, uh, and so within all this diversity, Paul turns around and says this. For, uh, um, let me just give you 12 as well. For as the body is one and have many members and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. That seems to strongly imply that everybody who walks with God has everything that they need. Doesn't it? Is that, is that how you would read it? Yeah. Now, the, tr the, 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 the challenge with that verse, and where some people would disagree with that, that um, interpretation, is that um, <clears throat> elsewhere, the baptism of the Holy Spirit has always been spoken of. Um, they speak about Jesus was the one who was going to come. John the Baptist says, there's one coming after me. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Got it? So this is... Um, this is, this is a little bit of a different take on it, and some people would argue against this verse referring to the baptism of the Holy Spirit because it says now, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Where in previous references it's always Jesus being referred to as baptizing us in the Holy Spirit. Get it? Get the difference? I'm now offering the counter-argument of the interpretation on this verse. Um, but, however... The last part of that verse does seem to be pretty unifying, doesn't it? It says, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. So again, another key definitive ver verse in the debate, which yet again could legitimately be interpreted or explained in two different ways. Hmm. Again, clear as mud, isn't it? How about this question? <clears throat> Why couldn't this be a lot easier? Why couldn't it just been a lot? Why couldn't? Why did God have to write the Bible like this? Couldn't He have just made like a, a doctrinal statement, you know, like it's on everybody's website, just like da 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 list, kind of like this? Why did He have to have the Song of Solomon, the Psalms, these crazy historical accounts in the Book of Acts, epistles? And it's not the Word of God is not systematic at all, is it? Yeah. It's not. I call this. The ambiguity of God. 
People want to talk about the attributes of God. This is the ambiguity of God, where God likes to be suitably vague at certain times. I've written about this before in the church newsletter. Just like the time when the disciples were right there in the temple with Jesus, okay, and um, the, the, the Pharisees were all there attacking him and stuff and laying charges to him and trying to cut him down and asking for a proof that he could do this and say that. And he says, I'll tell you what, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. He said that, like he's standing there in the temple. It's pretty obvious what he must be talking about, right? He's talking about the temple he's standing beside and he's claiming that if you smashed this temple up, he would rebuild it. Well, that's crazy. They're like, you're, you're nuts. It took like 40 years to build this temple. But what was he talking about? His body. The ambiguity of God. God can speak with whatever degree of specificity that he wants to speak with at any time. And what he was doing with those disciples, those disciples, can you imagine how dumb they felt? They're like claiming allegiance to this guy. They've given everything up for this guy. They're like, Jesus, what are you saying? You're embarrassing me. Have you ever felt like that? When somebody's like, Christian, huh? Well, what about this, 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 and this? And you're like, honestly, I don't have answers for that. What am I going to say? Trust God. Amen. Trust God. God wanted to, us to make sure that we were clinging to him. Right. That he gave us just enough of the answers to really know where we ought to be going and what we ought to be doing, but just enough of lack of answers to keep us pretty humble and broken. But when men come along and they make up their, their there's our doctrinal creed and stuff, and we definitely have the answer in this, and we definitely have the answer in that, without offering the biblical counter-argument, and pretending like this is the only answer in this issue. And I, I think that discredits um, other believers and other understandings, okay? So couldn't it be a whole lot easier? Yeah, apparently not. Um, God really wanted to sift us. He wanted us to, to be humble. He wanted us to rely upon him. Not only does, uh, should we state what the Word of God says, it's very significant what the Word of God says, but given that we have a God that could have said anything in the Word of God, we better be pretty mindful of what the Word of God doesn't say. Not to go beyond the Word of God, not to fall short of the Word of God. Let's just kind of look at this for a second. We're talking about an issue. Okay, you tell, okay God's going to give the church a book, right? Here you go, church, here's a book. Go see what you do with this book. 2,000 years later, there's still issues in this book and basically what the universal body of Christ is saying is this. We're not altogether sure on this issue. If 2,000 years later, you've still got a segment in the church saying, oh, it definitely means this. There's definitely a second work of grace. You've definitely got to do this. You do. And then a whole chunk of the body of Christ is saying, well, you don't need this. And basically the church universal is saying after 2,000 years and God giving us his word, it's like, we're not 100% sure on what it's saying right there. For all our doctor's degrees and all our names after, letters after names and all this stuff, we're not altogether sure in it. That kind of both, could both cut both ways. Maybe it's both at different times. Maybe it's different things for different times for different people. 
So when you're saying, okay, Pastor Nicky, cut to the chase, what do you believe? Is there a second work of grace? Absolutely. And a third, and a fourth, and a fifth, and a sixth, and basically, I want all of them. I need all of them. Okay? Why is it that some people, man, they give their hearts to Jesus? I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about Vanessa's testimony. I remember coming to church one day, and um, <clears throat> Vanessa Sanders, uh, after a long while, Jerry's like, I think there's somebody here that needs to testify. Vanessa eventually stands up and says something like, um, uh, yeah, Brett and I were like talking the other night and I became a Christian. <laughs> that was it. But as far as you and I can tell, she's walked with God ever since, right? Yeah. Why is it that some people um, believe something in their heart when they're four years old? They never turn back. They never turn around. They never quit. They never back off and they live it for the rest of their life to the glory of God. Amen. Other people um, go forward, say a prayer. Fruit seems to come and go. Faithfulness seems to come and go. And guess what? Ten years later they get saved. And they stand up and say, I thought I was saved ten years ago. I wasn't. I didn't give it all to Jesus. But now I am. Okay, so there's all sorts of ways that you could cut it in terms of uh, whatever work of grace you want to talk about. Whether it's coming to Christ for the first time, that can be kind of nebulous. Some people don't even know the day that it happened on. Some people like it was that day right there. I went to the altar, I got changed, I've never been the same. God called me to the ministry the same day and I've never turned back. And some people are like, well, kind of like, Round about the fall of such and such a year, some, you know, <clears throat> um, the context of a verse in 1 Corinthians 12, it was talking about a diversity, um, the verse we spoke about, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit we're all baptized into one body, and we have all been made to drink of the one spirit. The context of that is the diversity of not only giftings, but it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 6, Actually, back up to 12.4. 1 Corinthians 12.4, it says, Now there's a diversity of gifts, but the same Spirit. And then it says, And there are differences of administration, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but the same God which works all in all. So in other words, there's a threefold diversity in the body of Christ, not only in gifts, but the way we receive things, the way the wonderful grace of God, the all-encompassing finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, which I thoroughly and wholeheartedly believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. How and when and where and how many experiences by which that is imparted to any individual? I'll let them and God be in charge of that one, okay? The Holy Spirit can be dispensed into our lives in different ways. We come into the kingdom in different ways. Experiences do not always come with post-it notes. Just like, the just like when the devil talks to you, it doesn't come along with a little public service announcement, this is the devil. I'm about to tell you something. No, it's just kind of like, well, it's actually the same with experiences with God. It doesn't always come with a post-it note saying, 
You just experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Some people, they give their lives to Jesus. They don't feel a whole lot. Then they come along here and they come along to get baptized in water. They go down into the water and they have powerful experiences down there. It's almost like they're baptized in the spirit and the water at the same time. That didn't happen for me. I was baptized in water. Just like nothing happened. It's just like, okay, cool. Got baptized. Supposed to do that. Check. But two days after I gave my life to Jesus, I'm driving along in my car, minding my own business. Boom! I just, when I, when I, got, when I gave my heart to Jesus, um, I didn't even know that. I didn't have this Christian vocabulary. I wasn't a Christian. People are like, ha, pat me on the back on the way out the door. Hey, everybody, Nicky got saved. Nicky gave his heart to Jesus. I'm like, do what? <laughs> I just talked to God. I just said, hey, God, I'm going in the wrong direction. I've been living my life for the wrong reasons. <clears throat> I'll do everything according to your will if you help me to know it. They're like patting me on the back. Nicky got saved. I was like, what? What's he talking about? Two days later, I'm driving down the road in my car. The presence of God was so strong in the car. That it's just like this joy and euphoria were flowing out of my belly. It was tremendous. I just wanted to shout. I wanted to roll down both windows simultaneously and stick my hands out and go, Woohoo! And I looked in the rearview mirror. I thought, this is crazy. My friends were driving right behind me. I thought, is this happening to them too? See, I was so ignorant. I didn't know it was anything to do with the fact that I'd just given my life to Jesus. My, my friends, they hadn't been at the church service that day. I just thought it was something weird going on, maybe happening. They looked totally normal. I looked at them in the rearview mirror. They just looked totally normal. I was like, I don't know what this is. But praise God, it feels pretty good. So what? Was that the baptism of the Holy Spirit? It didn't come with a post-it note. I tell you the two most life-changing things that ever happened to me in the Christian walk. I've had multiple, quote, powerful experiences in the Holy Spirit, experiencing the presence of God. I'll, say, I'll tell you something shocking. None of them changed my life. Some of you might be insulted by that. Some of you might uh, be uh, offended by that, but none of them changed my life. I tell you two things that changed my life. One of them was when I said to God, um, God, I've been living my life for the wrong reasons. I got convicted of sin. That changed my life. I've never been the same since. Uh, a couple of years later, when I realized I was a miserable Christian, um, and... Uh, Jesus came to give us life more abundant and I wasn't getting that. I said, Lord, I'm not getting this. So obviously I needed something else, right? I needed another work of grace. <laughs> but it wasn't any experience or fuzzies or anything that, that changed my life a second time, but it was the fact that um, God had let me in the front door long enough just to see really what was at stake. Because I prayed this prayer, Lord, I'll do your will from now on and not mine. Well, the thing was, I didn't even have a clue what I was praying. God's like, mm-hmm, right. <laughs> God's awesome. He's like, okay, come on in. Come on in and have a little look around, and then we'll see where you're at with that whole thing. Two years later, I was like, whoa. I was like, um, I guess when I said I would do his will in every single area of my life, I realized that that included a lot more than I could ever have conceived. That actually included my job, where I lived, every single down-to-earth decision. And for a second time, I said, God, 
Just let me do your will. Even if I don't like it, give me the courage to do your will and I'll do it because I know your will's best. No warm fuzzies, nothing. That changed, that changed my Christian walk more than anything. I went from being this kind of guy that kind of was so busy with my job and stuff, kind of got to church when I could. I am kind of bouncing off the bottom of Christianity to being established, established in the basic truths of the Christian faith, in the, in the, in the body of Christ, in the word of God, um, acknowledging and witnessing for Jesus, um, trying to live and grow in the spirit. But um, that's been my experience. Um, one thing that I would uh, insist upon in terms of experiences or, or whatever um, is uh, what the Bible describes as the witness of the Spirit. And that's in Romans chapter 8, verse 14. Again, you don't want to go too far with this because it, the Bible never, it doesn't have 10 paragraphs describing exactly what the witness of the Spirit is. But you can infer in general terms from the words that the Holy Spirit chose to use. What does a witness do? It says, I saw it, this is what happened, right? right. Or, or, a witness, or a witness may, can I get a witness? That's just, a witness says yes, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what a witness does. And getting back to Romans chapter 8. It says, for the Spirit itself, verse 16, beareth witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I tell you what, now the stakes are getting higher. Because we're not talking anymore about a little ex an experience or some giftings or this or that. We're talking about whether you are going to heaven or to hell for eternity. Amen. And God says in his word, if there's anything that you must have, you must know that you are a child of God. I'm not going to say here, to, if, uh, if you want to come up and you want to have me lay hands on you because you feel like you need another experience, praise God, let's do it. Um, but I tell you something, if you're sitting here today and you don't know 100%, if you die right now, that you're going to hear the words from Jesus Christ, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. If you don't know for sure, and we're not talking about arrogance, we're talking about this witness of the Holy Spirit it's not arrogance, it's not pride. It's that Baptist preacher that we visited across town described it. He said, this is a no-so religion. We're not Muslims. We're not hoping that our good works are going to outweigh our bad works on, on Judgment Day. We're children of the Most High God. And he said he would let us know when we'd crossed, not the finish line, or we'll know that too, but the start line. And he said he'd give us the witness of the Holy Spirit, that we would know with absolute assurance inside ourselves that we were children of God, that we'd started the race, that we'd started a journey. If the journey ended now, that would be okay too. That's amazing, isn't it? And that's what the Bible calls the witness of the Holy Spirit. So if, if, uh, if you have the witness of the Holy Spirit and you are walking with God, the Bible says in Acts 5.32, Peter was preaching and he, and he said that they were, he was witnesses to the, all the things that had happened. But then he also said, and so also is the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that what? Obey him. If you know beyond all doubt that you are a child of God, that you are walking with God to the best of the ability, that you obey his word and you obey the Holy Spirit and be open to the Holy Spirit, right? Just be open and willing for anything that he would want to give you, use you or not use you, if the case may be, just for the opportunity to walk with him. I'd say you're pretty much on track. 
I'd say you really probably don't have a whole lot to be worried about. Um, also in Luke 11, it says, if you then being evil, we just studied this in our men's Tuesday morning group, um, if you then being evil know how to give gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask them? You don't need to be in doubt over this kind of stuff. The best gift that Jesus could give is the indwelling Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, an initial experience of the Holy Spirit, whatever, however it worked with you or didn't work with you. I'm not picking bones over it, but the fullness of the Spirit is simply to continue to walk in the Spirit and let Him be with us every single day. Amen. That's a whole other sermon, the fullness of the Spirit. But um, just bringing this whole thing to conclusion, I've had the great privilege of fellowshipping with leaders from a broad spectrum of understandings. And uh, I've taken the time over the years to ask them, things would come up, I would go away, I would Google it, I would research it, I would check the verses and stuff. And when you first read someone's argument, I'm like, wow, this is it, yeah, man, they've got, they're onto something. And then two months later, in the broad context of things, you realize, well, you know what, it's just kind of part of the overall picture, it's not a huge deal. What separates people claiming to be Christians and the caliber of people today who claim to be Christians, what separates them is, what I have noticed is not whether they have or had a certain experience, not whether they do or don't speak in tongues. Um, what separates these people is um, whether they are faithful, faithfully walking with Jesus, madly in love with Jesus, doing his will no matter what the cost. Once you do that, everything else is in God's hands. And you can't control that. He may make you a Billy Graham. He may give you the gift to heal. And you may be laying hands on people. People getting healed. Life, right? That's up to God. But what's up to us is just to walk with him, be in love with him, do his will the best that we can. That's it. Chill out. Walk with God. Don't get vexed over this stuff. And let the Holy Spirit deal with you. That's about all I have to say on this subject. Thank you.